Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our DLBCL journey. We talked all about early stage last week, and this week we move on to the advanced stage. Excited to keep on going with lymphoma. I love this theme. We're going to have to eventually cut this series off and then, you know, get back to the things that I don't find as interesting. But, you know, here we are. There's benign heme on the horizon somewhere. That's what I'll think about today. A week has passed since our last recording, and Vivek still has the same smile he had last week. So it's going to be another great episode for y'all. Stay tuned. We'll roll that show now. Guys, I wanted to pick your brain and ask you what your thoughts were on the fact that pumpkin spice lattes were released at Starbucks at the end of August when the majority of our country is still probably hovering in the 80s to 100 degree weather. Thoughts? Is it too early? Is it basically September? And so we just overlook all that. How are we feeling about that? It's never too early for the pumpkin spice lattes. You know, I'm very basic in some ways. You know, I love the ultimatum. I love trashy reality TV. And boy, do I love those pumpkin spice lattes. I'm all happy about it. I have three thoughts on this. One, this is holiday creep, right? Like this is a common phenomenon. This is why the Christmas music starts immediately after Halloween now. It's only a matter of time until Halloween is no longer a barrier. The second, in a way, this is foreshadowing, right? In the future, the fall is probably going to be like this, sadly, and the summers are going to be even worse. So might as well get used to it now. And the third, PSL, I have no problem with it, but I do feel like it has so much room to grow. I think that if we made those same spice blends ourselves, toasted, freshly ground, I think that there's so much room to go up from where we're at. Interesting points. Maybe I'll have a new perspective. I think I was just so blown away by the fact that I'm sweating and people are trying to tell me it's now the time to get a latte. It's still iced coffee season right now in my eyes. Anyway, we'll put that discussion aside just for a little bit. And let's talk a little bit more about our DLBCL patients, specifically our advanced stage. And, you know, I thought last week we really had a great discussion about how we approach our early stage patients. And I assume a lot of those same fundamental principles are going to apply today. And we just build on that. So Vivek, again, do you want to take us through another interesting case to guide our discussion today? Yeah, definitely. And this is a case of a patient that I saw in clinic recently. So we have a 55-year-old male with enlarging right cervical adenopathy that he noticed. He endorses drenching night sweats. So it's important to ask our patients, not just are you hot at night, but are you having drenching night sweats? And a 20-pound unintentional weight loss. He ultimately is evaluated by his primary care provider. There was concern for potential malignancy. He underwent a CT chest abdomen pelvis, which showed extensive lymphadenopathy above and below the diaphragm with fairly large retroperitoneal masses close to his ureters. At that point, there was no obstruction or hydronephrosis. He was ultimately sent over for a biopsy with radiology, and he had a core biopsy of a supraclavicular lymph node that was palpable and easily accessible. That biopsy showed a CD5 negative, CD10 negative, 
and CD20-positive large cell lymphoma with effacement of the lymph node architecture. Remember that in some cases, a core biopsy can be sufficient, though we do like to get the excisional lymph node biopsies when we can. In this case, I was sent a patient that had the core biopsy, and hey, that's fine. He got enough tissue. The IHC was notable for MYC and BCL2 overexpression with BCL6 negative on the IHC. So CD5 negative, CD10 negative on flow, BCL6 negative on the IHC. His KI67 was 60 to 70%, so relatively rapidly dividing, and the fish is now pending. Before we get into the management of this patient, let's talk about what else you want for further risk stratification and workup. Remember that we think about DLBCL as either early stage or advanced stage when we're making treatment decisions. We initially had the Ann Arbor classification because of that meeting in Ann Arbor, Michigan in the CT era. And then we updated that with the Lugano modification for Lugano staging after a meeting in Lugano, Switzerland, now that we're in the PET CT era, just a little over a decade ago. An advanced stage disease is defined by involvement of nodes above and below the diaphragm, which would be stage three, or extensive or multiple sites of extranodal involvement that can't be encompassed in a single radiation field, which would be stage four. I'll note that the spleen is considered a nodal organ, as well it should be, but the bone marrow is not. That is considered an extranodal site, which would upstage a patient to stage four in involvement. So with that in mind, I would wanna get a PET-CT, an LDH, a TTE, and a hepatitis B. And some of this is kind of thinking ahead because we know if a patient's gonna need anthracycline as a part of their therapy, we wanna know what their ejection fraction is. We wanna know if their heart can take the chemotherapy that we're likely going to recommend. And then we also know that rituximab is likely in this man's future. And if that's the case, we need to know his hepatitis status. So it's good to get those things cooking up front. So that would be the package of things that I'd want to get. The TTE, the hep B, thinking ahead for treatment, and an LDH and a PET-CT to kind of help us understand exactly what his disease is looking like. Yeah, that's perfect. So we ordered the LDH on our patient. It was elevated at 590, so pretty elevated. And the PET-CT showed intensely avid adenopathy in the bilateral cervical, right supraclavicular, bilateral axillary, and retroperitoneal areas with also a notable left inguinal avid lymph node. There was also notable diffuse marrow uptake and a focal area of intense uptake in the stomach as well as the proximal small intestine concerning for additional sites of disease. So what do you make of that PET-CT scan and how are you going to interpret the LDH for this patient? So once again, based on all of that information, I think the next step from here that we would want to do is calculate the patient's IPI score, remembering that Apple's mnemonic. So again, this patient is less than 60, so he doesn't get a point there. His performance status is less than two. LDH was very elevated, so he's definitely going to get a point there. He's got multiple sites of extranodal disease, and he has stage four disease as well. So this would lead him to have an IPI of three because of the LDH the external disease, and the staging. And so this is certainly somebody with higher risk lymphoma. And hopefully, listeners, you can already piece that together without having to calculate the score just based on the characteristics that we describe with this patient. But the IPI is very important for prognostication purposes, and therefore it's important to calculate because this is going to influence our treatment decisions, like the use of CNS prophylaxis, which we will discuss in this episode. 
And you know, in this case, we don't really need to go ahead with that bone marrow biopsy either because we don't need it to upstage this patient to stage four disease. It's clear based on his imaging alone that he has extranodal involvement and likely bone marrow involvement, but we don't need to prove that. We already know what we're dealing with here, advanced stage. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that was one of the reasons what happened at that Lugano meeting. As we said, if there's a lot of marrow avidity, is it really necessary to do a bone marrow biopsy? Is that going to change our management right now? And for this patient, it would not. So our patient has advanced stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma with an IPI of three. And for the sake of discussion, let's say that we have an incredible cytogenetics lab and it just came back the same day that we're seeing him. And he had extra copies of MYC, but otherwise no rearrangements on FISH. So how are you going to interpret his pathology report? Just to remind our listeners again, he was CD10 negative, BCL6 negative, and he had that high expression of MYC and BCL2, now with FISH showing extra copies of MYC. So we had discussed this before, but we remember that we risk stratify patients based on IHC and more importantly, that FISH testing. So CD10 negative and BCL6 negative is the non-germinal center B cell subtype, which has a worse prognosis than that germinal center B subtype that we talked about last time. Remember that his IHC classification is correlated to gene expression profiling from work done by Christine Hans, and the algorithm to determine GCB versus non-GCB is called the Hans algorithm. And go back to our show notes from the first DLBCL episode for a further discussion about that. But you'll remember from that discussion that this is prognostic for patients, but it's not necessarily predictive, so it does not change our initial management. Another pearl that we want to emphasize is if this patient were CD10 positive and the KI67 was 100%, we should always assume that this patient has Burkitt lymphoma unless proven otherwise. The IHC was notable for overexpression of MYC and BCL2, which classifies this as a double expressor lymphoma. And remember the difference between double expressor, which is based on IHC, versus double hit, which is based on FISH. And this again can be prognostic, but does not necessarily change our management. Now we get to the game changer, which is the FISH. The patient had an extra copy of MYC, but no rearrangements. Extra copies are not as important as rearrangements would be. High-grade B-cell lymphoma is characterized by rearrangements in MYC and BCL2 or BCL6, and it's called double hit if it has MYC and one or the others, or it's triple hit if you have all three of these rearrangements. We simplified by calling these high-grade B-cell lymphomas, which have the worst prognosis and have a different treatment strategy. So if you forget, remember that the eight ball is the most important ball in pool, and MYC is the most important gene rearrangement located on chromosome eight. So always think of the eight ball when you think about MYC. BCL6 is on chromosome three because it affects three proteins. And BCL2 is on chromosome 18 with the characteristic translocation 1418. All right, so we've got a patient in front of us with advanced stage DLBCL that is a non GCB subtype and is double expressor on IHC. The fish is negative for high grade B cell lymphoma, or also known as you know, double or triple hit lymphoma. So, what are we going to do now? How are you going to treat this patient? So now we get back to our history lesson. And I don't really know if our listeners like this, but it's what we do. And, and people are somehow still listening to the podcast. So I'm going to do it again. 
So we really need to understand the historical context to fully get the modern treatment algorithm in large cell lymphoma. Like we talked about last week, in the 1970s and 1980s, combination chemotherapy with CHOP was a standard of care. Remember, CHOP is cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. We discussed the use of radiotherapy last week for early-stage disease, but in general, patients were given eight cycles of therapy historically. In the 1980s and 1990s, there were several attempts to beat CHOP, and the idea here was use more, use more intensive regimens. Some of these intensive regimens were called quote-unquote second generation, and some were called third generation. Oncology has always been clever with the way we name things when we invent new strategies and new ways to treat patients. And this was all compared to CHOP, which was considered the lowly first generation. And really, these newer generation regimens included six to eight drugs as opposed to the four drugs and CHOP, because again, we thought more was better. Famously, in the 1980s, the National Cancer Institute developed an intensive regimen called Pro-Mace Cytobomb, and it had really impressive results in their single center. And so remember, this is a crazy regimen called Pro-Mace Cytobomb, which probably nobody's ever heard of listening to this podcast. In 1993, a group compared CHOP to more intensive approaches, including that Pro-Mace Cytobomb, in a phase three trial run by the SWOG Cooperative Group. And here's the bottom line. There was no difference in progression-free survival or overall survival, and there was way more toxicity. So remember, promacitabomb included prednisone, doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, etoposide, followed by cytarabine, bleomycin, vincristine, and methotrexate. So that's not chill at all. It's the kitchen sink and chop beat that. CHOP remained the standard of care. And at that point, we realized, hey, maybe we need to be smarter and not do more. We need smarter drugs, not just more drugs. And then finally, after 30 years of therapy with CHOP, our CHOP times eight cycles was compared to CHOP times eight cycles in a phase three randomized control trial published in the England Journal of Medicine in 2002. This trial was run by the French cooperative group, the GELA, the, I call them the GILA cooperative group. I have no idea how you're supposed to say it. And this included patients who were 60 and older. And this found that our CHOP was superior to CHOP for CR rates, PFS, and OS. And there was a similar trial run by the United States cooperative groups, and we call that an intergroup trial when there's multiple cooperative groups involved. And this was also comparing RCHOP versus CHOP. But in the United States, we said, hey, what if we did RCHOP for six cycles? Is that just as good? And in that trial, that's really where we found that RCHOP for six cycles is just as good as RCHOP for eight cycles and beats CHOP. The other important thing about that U.S. cooperative group trial, again, this was published in 2005. We're going to link this. And it's good to know this historical context. You may be wondering, what about maintenance rituximab? You might hear that for some indolent lymphomas. This was a study where there was a second randomization. So the first randomization was R-CHOP versus CHOP. The second randomization was R-maintenance. Do we need rituximab maintenance? And the answer was no. And this is why we don't do rituximab maintenance in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And this is why we do R-CHOP times six in the United States as a standard of care therapy. Because of this trial in 2005, where we said, hey, maybe we don't need eight cycles. We could do six cycles. It's always interesting to hear about how practice patterns are different between the United States and European countries simply based on trial design. And as we know, in my opinion, it always makes sense to attempt fewer cycles and try and reduce that burden of cardiotoxicity. One other thing I've seen when I was looking at these lymphoma trials is the use of RCHOP14 and RCHOP21. Can you talk about the difference between these two regimen variants? Absolutely. So after CHOP was finally beaten by RCHOP, 
Researchers thought that potentially dose-dense RCHOP given every 14 days with GCSF support might be better than standard RCHOP, which was given every 21 days. So essentially, we reduce the amount of time between cycles, and we give patients growth factor to try to support the fact that they'll become neutropenic. And there were two phase three randomized trials that compared RCHOP14 to RCHOP21. One trial from that GELA, the, the GELA group that Vivek had mentioned, and one trial from the UK group. Both trials showed no difference in PFS or OS. And that's why we always use the RCHOP21 as our standard regimen now. All right, let's get back to our case. So we had a previously healthy patient with advanced double expressor DLBCL and an IPI score of three. Another prognostic factor is this non-GCB subtype. RCHOP times six cycles was the standard of care from what we've discussed. Now though, the standard of care for advanced stage DLBCL, excluding those high-grade lymphoma subtypes, your double, triple hit, with IPI2 or higher is POLA RCHP, so incorporating one of our new antibody drug conjugates. If the IPI score was zero to one in the advanced setting, we still use the RCHOP for six cycles, but how did we get to this new regimen with this ADC drug, polatuzumab vidotin? So it's all about getting smarter with our treatments for lymphoma, and this is a perfect example of that. So as we've previously discussed in our podcast, antibody drug conjugates have become a staple in the treatment of many cancers. For diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, we have the antibody drug conjugate polituzumab vidotin, and the antibody in this case is to CD79B, which is universally expressed on B-cell receptors on mature B-cell lymphoma. So you don't have to test for it. Nearly all diffuse large B-cell lymphomas will express the CD79B. And the drug component is vidotin, the payload, which is a potent microtubule agent. And so when I think about that, I'm always thinking about neuropathy as a big side effect, as well as neutropenia. So you have to use GCSF support when you give these patients polituzumab-based regimens. It was originally used in the relapse refractory setting, either with rituximab or in combination with bendamustine rituximab, and the overall response rates around the 50-60% range, so it was a promising drug. There was a phase 1b2 trial in the newly diagnosed setting, and this really led to the phase 3 Polarix trial, which was recently published in the England Journal in 2022. So this included over 800 patients with all stages of DLBCL early and advanced stage, and an IPI of two or higher. You might be asking, why did they include patients with early-stage disease? And I don't have the answer for that, but it was about 10% of the total population. And these patients were randomized to POLA RCHP for six cycles versus RCHOP for six cycles, followed by two cycles of maintenance rituximab in both groups. We talked about how in 2005 we showed there's no benefit of that, but in some of the European countries they were still doing these chemotherapy for eight cycles, so that was a way to kind of bridge the gap while we're running this really multi-country trial. You may note that we're omitting the O in CHOP because vincristine and polituzumab vidotin have that neuropathy side effect, so we didn't want to accumulate. So we're not adding a drug, we're replacing a drug with a smarter drug was the idea. Both of these arms receive GCSF support, and then I just want to note that for RCHOP, you really only need GCSF support for your older patients or those who had prior chemotherapy who have that greater than 10% risk of febrile neutropenia. But in this case, all patients got it just to make things even. And the results of the study showed an improved two-year progression-free survival at 77% versus 70%. So you're getting a 7% increase in PFS with POLA RCHP. There was no difference in overall survival, and this is due to good 
salvage options with things like CAR-T nowadays. But really, this was the first trial to show any improvement against RCHOP in 20 years. And you might be wondering, why did the UK group approve this drug to be used? And why did the FDA approve this to be used? And that's because it actually ends up being cost-effective when you prevent CAR-T therapy. So the whole goal here is that, yes, overall survival wasn't different, but by incorporating polituzumab early, the goal is to cure more patients with frontline therapy and not have to use therapies later on. That's really the hope with the use of polituzumab. The more mature data will really give us that answer. So that's really an important thing to note, but that's why we use POLA-RCHP for advanced stage lymphoma with an IPI of two or higher, I would not do this for my early stage patients. I would still do less chemotherapy with something like an RCHOP for four cycles. I think that makes a lot of sense. So for advanced stage with an IPI of two or higher, as you said, we go for this POLA-RCHP regimen based on this POLAR-X trial that you just mentioned. For patients with an IPI of zero to one, like you also said, with more extensive disease, we can reach for that RCHOP times six, which is the way to go. And this can include our patients with bulky stage two disease who can't get less intensive regimens as we had discussed in our last week's episode. So remember guys here, we are not talking about high grade B cell lymphoma, as in those double or triple hit. These are patients in the absence of that. And so The next thing I wanted to bring up is we often talk about CNS prophylaxis when it comes to lymphomas. And so where did this idea come from and who should be getting CNS prophylaxis in DLBCL? When it comes to diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, relapse in the CNS is a very difficult thing to treat and associated with a very poor prognosis. So we want to identify those who are at highest risk for CNS relapse and do something to reduce that risk. In the early studies, we found that in some risk groups, these patients were at about a 20 to up to 30% risk of CNS relapse, depending on certain features of their disease. So the idea behind giving a CNS prophylaxis is to provide therapy that could eradicate any microscopic disease that's present in the CNS during your frontline treatment for these diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients when you're giving drugs that aren't able to penetrate that blood-brain barrier and penetrate into the CNS. So a group of researchers from Germany and Canada who ran some of the early trials with rituximab used data from those trials to create a risk score called the CNS-IPI. This is literally the same as the IPI score, except with the addition of kidney slash adrenal involvement as an additional factor. So it's that APLS, that apples that we talked about, plus kidney adrenal involvement is another risk factor that you can get. So you can get a total of six possible points. What they found was if the score was four to six, then the patient was deemed high risk, meaning there were greater than 10% risk of CNS relapse. And for those patients, CNS prophylaxis is recommended. Another risk group where this is recommended are patients who have high-grade B-cell lymphoma, so MYC rearrangement and BCL2 or BCL6 or all three, the triple hit patients, and patients with lymphoma in certain high-risk areas testicular lymphoma is a sanctuary site and a high-risk area for CNS disease. Lymphoma of the breast is another high-risk site. There's a primary cutaneous leg-type lymphoma, which is very high-risk. And again, we're just going to link these to our show notes. We'll talk more about some of these more rare lymphomas in a future episode. And another big one is pretty obvious, but you just don't want to forget an epidural location of lymphoma. If the lymphoma is very close to the CNS, you're going to want to prophylax them because they have a high risk of contiguous spread. We talked about contiguous extranodal involvement. That would be a good example of that. So you may be asking, well, how are you going to do CNS prophylaxis? Two options, intrathecal methotrexate for four doses or 
high-dose methotrexate after the completion of planned frontline chemotherapy for two cycles. So intravenous high-dose methotrexate. So generally, we consider that as more intense, more toxic than intrathecal therapy. And notably, the data for the efficacy of CNS prophylaxis is very minimal and really retrospective in nature, except at the European Hematology Association meeting, EHA, in 2023, just a couple months ago, there was a phase three trial that compared intrathecal methotrexate versus systemic high-dose methotrexate for CNS prophylaxis. And the patients included, they were randomized to intrathecal versus high-dose methotrexate, but they were just patients with a high IPI score or a high-risk extranodal site that we had just previously mentioned, you know, testicles, breast, kidney and or adrenal involvement. But in this trial, they didn't require a high CNS IPI, so just an IPI of three or higher. And what we found was there was no difference in CNS relapse rate between the two strategies, about 5% in each arm. So both are very acceptable strategies, and intrathecal therapy is better tolerated and honestly easier to administer, which is why we prefer it nowadays. But what we did find is in that trial, patients with a high CNS IPI, so those with four or higher on their CNS IPI, had a CNS relapse rate of 10% in that study. So there's a lot more work that needs to be done for that high risk group. We haven't identified a very good strategy to reduce the relapse risk, even for those patients getting either high-dose methotrexate or intrathecal methotrexate. I'm really glad you went over that. I remember in fellowship, you'd see CNS prophylaxis a lot in these lymphoid malignancies, lymphomas, ALL, that sort of thing. And I don't think that was ever really summarized in the course of my training in such a succinct way. So our patient got POLA RCHP for three cycles, and then we had planned an interim PET-CT. Can you tell us the utility of PET-CT versus just plain CT? And I imagine there's some institutional variation in what imaging modality is preferred. Can you talk a little bit about that? The Lugano response criteria is based on a five-point scale, aka the Doval score. And this was really designed to help us determine CR at the end of treatment. It was also used as a way for us to do an interim check to change our management if necessary. So for our advanced stage patients, the five-point scale at interim PET doesn't really matter too much unless there are new sites of disease and the patient is primary refractory prior to completing induction therapy, which is quite rare. For this reason, it's reasonable to obtain an interim CT scan as opposed to a PET CT to evaluate for the reduction in the tumor volume and assess for obvious new sites of disease. We often default to doing the PET CT because it's nice to know that these areas of tumor are becoming less active, but again, this is rarely, if ever, going to change our management. It's also common to get it after three cycles as this is what would change our management for patients with early stage disease when deciding whether or not to do RCHOP times four versus RCHOP times three, followed by IFRT. If not in a CR, then we would proceed with radiation as opposed to the additional cycle of RCHOP for those patients, as we had previously discussed. In the Polarix trial, the interim staging was done after the fourth cycle of therapy. So in this case, our patient had an interim PET-CT done with prior AVID areas, now a Doval score of three, and an interval decrease in his adenopathy. He continued with treatment that was complicated by some neuropathy. End of treatment PET-CT showed a CR with a score of two on a five-point scale. And so remember that CR is defined by a score of three or less, so this is great. And patients with a score of four or five should either get a short interval imaging follow-up or a repeat biopsy to rule out truly refractory disease. So guys, let's switch this case up a little bit and 
Let's say it was the same patient, except now his fish came back with rearrangements in MYC and BCL6. So now this is somebody that we would classify as double hit lymphoma. And certainly, as we now know, this is going to result in us classifying this patient as having a higher grade B-cell lymphoma. If that were the case, then we would probably want to go for more of an intensive regimen. And we alluded to this last week, and this is where that dose-adjusted R-epoch comes in. And so we do dose-adjusted R-epoch for six cycles. So I think the time has come. We need to talk about how we got to this point. So when we think about how we got to dose-adjusted our epoch and what does this mean? So we talked about how in the 80s, we had the third generation, lots of chemotherapies combined and found out that we needed to get smarter, that CHOP actually ended up being better. Dose-adjusted our epoch is what I think of as a smarter regimen. It is more intense, but it's also smarter. What we did with dose-adjusted our epoch, yes, we added a drug in etoposide, but these drugs are infused continuously over four days at a ratio that worked really well to kill these lymphoma cell lines in in vitro experiments. So basically we're saying that now we have these cell lines and in the lab, we're finding by giving this right ratio of these chemotherapy agents, we're getting good responses. So the idea was we could give this combination of chemotherapy to humans and get very good, better responses in lymphomas that historically for these high-grade B-cell lymphomas had overall survival at three-year mark around 30 to 40%. So very poor prognosis overall, and we needed to do something more. The other thing about dose-adjusted our epoch that was very enticing is that it's in the name. It's called dose-adjusted. We titrate the dosage of the chemotherapy agents to myelosuppression. Each of these patients, after they get their chemotherapy, will get twice weekly count checks. And based on the nadir of their neutrophil count and their nadir of their platelet count, will determine the next dose of chemotherapy. So you're up titrating the dose to the dose limiting toxicity, which is myelosuppression. So it allows you to actually give even higher doses of chemotherapy in a smart way. So that was the idea behind dose adjusted R epoch. There were many single-center studies that worked really well with this, and we're going to link the actual regimen of how the dose adjustments are done to our show notes. It's actually very simple. Just look at it. It's very, very easy. And ultimately, the thought was, what if we did this for everybody? Not just double hit, but what if we did this for everybody? And there was a cooperative group that's very pivotal called CalGB50303. And in this study, patients were randomized with large cell lymphoma to either RCHOP, or dose-adjusted our epoch. And we found no difference in PFS or OS. And that's that. There was a lot more toxicity in dose-adjusted our epoch. You might be asking, how many high-grade B-cell lymphomas were in that study? And I'll tell you, it was less than 5%. Very few patients had high-grade B-cell lymphoma because it is a rare subgroup of this population of lymphomas. There were a fair number of patients with double expressor lymphoma, and there was no benefit for dose-adjusted R-EPOC in that trial, which is why for double expressor, we don't have to go with dose-adjusted R-EPOC. Pola RCHP in the advanced stage is a very reasonable choice for an IPI-2 or higher for that patient population. So then you might be asking, why do we give dose-adjusted R-EPOC to high-grade B-cell lymphomas? Well, that CalGB trial didn't include a lot of those patients, so we can't draw a lot of conclusions. We had retrospective data, and we had some phase two data as well. We're going to link one of these phase two data to our show notes. Uh, It was published in Lancet Hematology in 2018. And in this study, what we found was for patients who had either a single hit rearrangement in MYC or a double hit rearrangement in MYC, so it included both of those, but we're going to focus on the double hit, they had a two-year PFS of about 80%, so 
much, much higher than our historical standard. So the idea was maybe with this data and a slew of other retrospective data, dose-adjusted REPOC is the way to go. We're still a little bit wary just because of what we saw with promesidabom, right? It was the same kind of concept. Are we actually improving the cure rates in these patients? We don't have that answer. And I think it just shows us we need to have smarter, newer strategies for high-grade B-cell lymphomas. But for now, dose-adjusted REPOC is considered the standard of care for those reasons. I love a regimen like that, right? This is a regimen that started with a rational basis from preclinical data, and it's designed to let the patient's body tell you what they're going to tolerate, and that builds in the titration of doses based on a patient's experience. I think that's great. One thing we do see in some of these lymphoid malignancies is the use of consolidative auto-transplant. Is there sort of data to support that in, in DLBCL as well? It's a great question. And this was really addressed for high-grade B-cell lymphomas, these double or triple hit lymphomas, right? These had the overall poor prognosis, higher relapse rates. And there was a retrospective study looking at, hey, for those patients who got these intensive regimens, whether they got dose-adjusted our EPOC or even something like our hyper which we haven't talked about, but intensive chemotherapy regimens, do they benefit from an autologous consolidative transplant? And the answer was no. We're going to link that to our show notes. It's a good retrospective study that really told us you do not need consolidative autologous transplant for these lymphoma patients. And that's even more true in the current era with CAR-T and all these other things, which we're not going to get into, but really no role for an autotransplant for large cell lymphoma, even for high-grade cases. So we talked a little bit about using PET-CT as an interim assessment in chemotherapy regimens, but I know that radiation obviously has a role in the treatment of some of these lymphomas as well. Do we use PET-CT at all to guide our radiation, or is that just a sort of pre-treatment planning intervention? Like, how do we use PET if we're using XRT? Yeah, it's a great question. And in large cell lymphoma, we found in a couple of studies, one was done by the German group, where the idea was, well, what if you had bulky disease to start with? Do you need to do radiation therapy? And what we found was that you don't necessarily need to do radiation therapy for bulky disease if you're PET negative at the end of treatment. So in large cell lymphoma, you look at the end of treatment PET. If you're PET negative, there's really no role for radiation for bulky disease or extranodal disease. Where there is a role for radiation is if you have PET positive disease at the end of treatment, a Doville 4 or 5 at a single location, that PET-guided approach where you would provide radiotherapy to the PET-AVID disease can actually help your patients and improve their long-term outcome. It's a little bit debatable nowadays with CAR-T. If you had refractory disease at the end of treatment, would you think about going to CAR-T cell therapy? But it's very reasonable if you had a Doville 4 at one side of disease to consider consolidative radiation therapy for that patient. And the other thing that radiation therapy does that's great, it doesn't provide systemic long-term disease control for those higher-risk patients who have refractory disease, but it provides great local control. So you might want to consolidate your patients with a big spinal met, for example. If you have a big spinal mass that's lymphoma, you do not want that recurrence to happen at that location. You want good local control. So you'd consider talking to your radiation oncologist about consolidative radiation therapy. Otherwise, there's really no role for just bulky or extranodal disease. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's a good reminder about the really complex way that we think about our patients with lymphoma. But as the data alludes to, and as we had discussed today, it works. And so this is why we have continued to make advances in this field. And I'm excited to see what the future of the field really does hold. 
Guys, I thought, again, we had another great discussion. As Dan pointed out before, there were several parts of this discussion that Honestly, I've never heard laid out the way that we laid it out today. Of course, I might be biased, but I really do think it adds a lot of clarity to an otherwise, you know, confusing complex disease to manage. Any final thoughts or any final words that you guys have as a takeaway? Sorry for the long episode, but check out the show notes. Hopefully this is helpful. Split it up if it was too long. I'm sorry about that. I just think it's great that we have sound evidence-based way to treat these more aggressive or more advanced versions of DLBCL. And just stay tuned to this space because there's a lot of active research going on. Sounds great. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace. Peace.